with the superintendent of Rochester Public Schools, Kent Pickell on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Good morning, Kent. Morning. I'm so glad we got together again. Um, I got to give you a little ribbing about the school closing business. Um, was it in your contract that you had to produce a viral video <laughs> once a year or something like that? Well, just so nobody gets scared, we mean school closings for snow days, not school closings for enrollment. Um, right. Uh, but, yeah, no, it was not. That was just a <laughs> – and, of course, I, I never thought the thing would go viral. I just was sitting here in my office where I am right now, and it was a day when I did something that I think I won't ever do again, which was try and get significantly ahead of a snow day and called it literally a day early. And the theory was – uh, let people know they can plan their childcare better. They can plan uh, other stuff. Uh, but the problem is that just creates more time for the storm to go somewhere else. And so I looked <laughs> out, and it was it was you beautiful. You could have done like surgery or served dinner on the streets. <laughs> they were so clean. And so I said, well, let me go out and try and do a video where I sort of imagine that it really was the worst snow day in history. And it was a lot of fun. And I was surprised it's gotten like 85,000 views since then. And I thought I was going to come here and start to get known for like literacy and deeper learning, but it's really been like snow days so far. (laughs) Take what you get. It was very funny. I uh, applaud your sense of humor. It was pretty good. Uh, And plus what you referred to is known as the superintendent's jinx. (laughs) call it too early get it right Um, and as all of us in the media uh, we get blamed for what the weather forecasters predict and when they started predicting the last week's snowstorm a week before it hit i was on the record saying this usually doesn't work out well i mean we got hit pretty good but it was nowhere near what they predicted it wasn't snowmageddon if you look at the comments on Twitter, when I posted the kind of tongue-in-cheek video, there were tons of comments, and most were really funny, and like, I had sort of joked that, okay, you kids out there in Rochester, you've spent the whole day studying Shakespeare and doing geometry, you can knock off a little early, and whatever, and then people sent pictures of their kids playing hockey, and it's like, only did this after uh, six hours (laughs) of Shakespeare and geometry, but some of the meteorologists were really upset and there was nothing I said in the video that actually attacked <laughs> meteorologists. And I was like, okay, this may be a fairly sensitive profession because I'm sure they get blamed all the time. But some of them were even like, there's something called the National Weather Service and you actually ought to pay attention to it. it was, yeah, we talked to them at 4.30 every time in lacrosse before we start <laughs> snow day. We don't, like, we don't just make this stuff up. Uh, but some of them, I don't want to make any enemies among meteorologists. <laughs> Some of them felt challenged by it, even though I never blamed any weather people at all. So, Well, you know, I, I would have thought that you would have really, really thick skin if you're a meteorologist. I would, too. And there were, there were some others who just were kind of like actually not upset but were giving me tips of how to get better forecasts. So that was fine. But, yeah, there were several that were really kind of uh, upset, and I'm sure that's a occupational hazard for them. Well, the one you shared one of the students, I don't know which school this person was from, but their uh, plea to you uh, concerning school cancellations, and it was uh, written as if it was written by Shakespeare, and I thought that was excellent humor. That was from Fahad, who's a student at Century High School, and it was just awesome. Actually, I've got a bunch that are awesome, um, but uh, his was... 
he's an AP Shakespeare. And so he sent me one written in sort of iambic pentameter of the asterisks and stuff. And I I was exchanging emails with him and it's got like 500 likes now or something. So he's like, wow, I kind of went viral. I was like, yeah, (laughs) Shakespeare did for you, you know? Uh, So that was a lot of fun. Um, And then, you know, we get other, you know, interesting things. And then I, kid at mayo emails me and says do you have a list of the snow days because i'm actually trying to use artificial intelligence to beat the snow day calculator predicting <laughs> in my data visualization and algorithms class and i was like that is awesome so <laughs> i sent it sent it to him and uh, he's promised he'd send me the results and another kid at mayo was doing a graphic arts project and he made a visual of me in front of a like a school bus in the snow yeah. as captain america i saw and it I know, and I was like, well, that's the only time I'm ever going to be compared to a superhero, and my only superpower is declaring snow days, but, you know, I'll take it. So, it was fun. Oh, wow. Yeah, as long as it's all good humor. Can't control yeah. Mother Nature, that's for sure. Right. And I imagine last week, during that storm, in the city, it was, yeah, you know, the roads weren't great, but out in the country, it must have been really rough. That's always the challenge for us in Rochester, is that, you know, we're about 220 square miles and we have routes that are, are urban and we have routes that are rural and the whole system's interconnected uh, and so that's why the call never seems uh, we, we can never think the call is easy because what is happening in one part of town Maine, I was just yesterday I was talking with uh, one of our administrators and where I live which is kind of right by downtown was really clear and she said it's whiteout where she was in the morning and yeah. you know, therein lies the, the challenge <laughs> the curse or the challenge. You choose right. which phrase. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, we're with Superintendent Kent Pickell from the Rochester Public Schools on Rochester Today. We'll take a really quick break back in just a moment on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Superintendent Kent Pickell from the Rochester Public Schools on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Um, Kent, last week... Tragedy occurred near one of our elementary schools. And there have been certainly things in the news about traumatic events happening at schools, particularly one in St. Paul where yep. a student was killed in school. Um, how, as a school system, do you respond to whatever trauma the students might be going through associated with these sorts of events? Of course, there's no perfect playbook, but this is an area where I am really proud of the capacity we have in Rochester Public Schools. We have a very dedicated central team that uh, consists of counselors, therapists, social workers, um, and other staff, and we deploy them immediately when we have an issue in a school. And they really do two things. In part, they sometimes work directly with um, students. Um and in, in part, they build the capacity of staff to work with the students because those teachers and other staff in the building have the relationships. And sometimes kids want to talk to someone who's not from the school, and then um, sometimes they want to talk to their teacher. But that teacher may not know how to handle things, may not know what to do. And so we try and go in and provide a, as much guidance as quickly as we can because um, there are some do's and don'ts that we that we know about. One of the things that is really important is that when a young person is talking about some kind of terrible experience they've either witnessed or experienced, 
or experience directly, um, like seeing someone be killed in a traffic accident, like someone committing suicide, um, like, I mean, in the case in St. Paul, literally a, a murder in the school. One of the most important things to do is to validate however the young person is feeling. And that sounds common sense, but in a really, really tense, fluid situation in which um, you have a teacher, a principal, maybe a superintendent who is not a trained therapist, the instinct might be actually to say, it's all right, you're going to be okay, things are going to be fine. And actually, that can have the unintended consequence of making the young person feel that they're, and think, intellectually think, not just feel, that they're response to the event is wrong yeah. they're weak or that they're, you know fill in the blank and so in those early stages you are validating however they are feeling you are also within the boundaries of privacy which almost always is a factor in this situation you are explaining as much as you can explain um in the incident last week um which did not involve a student we had students immediately in one of our elementary schools who thought that it did. Um, and we had to very immediately say, no, this was not another student. Now, that doesn't mean it's not traumatic to see a body. Um, but we had to very quickly clarify that because it shifts the sense of this was one of us to this was, was somebody. Yeah. So there's a few things. And then we have people who are much more expert than I am in these issues, and we deploy them to our schools and it's a it's a capacity that you wish you never had to use but we have had to do it just in the year and a half i've been in rochester multiple times for many different reasons and the, the message of validation i get that because it even goes back to if, you, if you're upset about something one of the worst things somebody can say to you is calm down totally it's like and, throwing gas on the fire and even and validation is explicit it's not just quiet listening so sometimes somebody can think they're, they're nodding they're listening but they don't say to the kid the way you are feeling right now is okay it's natural to feel this way it's like it's an explicit validation of that not just sort of empathic uh feeling for the young person it's really saying explicitly your fear or your concern or your anger is absolutely uh understandable at this moment and of course you do eventually then have to help the kids move beyond that but at the moment of of tragedy or trauma that's not the task at hand but i imagine the staff is feeling this too if they're oh my gosh if they're close by this is also happening to them 100 percent. and we know um actually not just in tragedies we know every single day as they're teaching and learning kids pick up how their teachers and food service personnel and custodial staff are feeling both verbally and non-verbally. And when a tragedy is there, it happens at even higher levels. And so providing support for staff is often another major priority. When there really is a crisis, part of the challenge is usually you go direct to the kids. You usually focus directly on the kids because there's not a lot of time to sort of say, well, we'll help the staff first and then we'll you know, get to the kids, um, that can leave staff without a, having had a chance to process and think and feel. And so that is that is a critical 
piece of it that gets challenging to do when you want to jump to helping the young people. The people within the district who do this work, the respond to these crises, do they volunteer for this? And what kind of training do they receive? They they all have backgrounds in it. They're part of. They're either in our schools or they're centrally located, and they are social workers, counselors, therapists, school psychologists. School psychs don't do it. Don't don't do the crisis response as much. But these are people who are um, called and trained in that work. For okay. Because sure. I imagine because we, we need them in our schools. Um, we need a lot more of them in our schools. Uh, even when there's no crisis, to deal with the many different issues that we're seeing in society today. Well, that leads to my next question, actually. I saw that uh, the school district has received a fairly large amount of funding to try to address that issue in itself. Maybe it's a $2 million or nearly $2 million grant. What would this money be used for? Yeah, if I, if I can, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. If I can just take one slight step back. I know people sure. who... When you have a, a, you know, somebody who still is is fairly new, at least in my first year as not an interim superintendent, and we have a brand new strategic plan, I think it's fair for the community and others to look for sort of early early signs of progress. And um, we know that uh, money doesn't in and of itself solve anything, but we also know you can't make major change without resources. So the fact that we received a $1.2 million grant, uh, dollar grant um, last month for the core of our academic agenda on deeper learning – and then this month received a $2 million grant focused on mental health practitioner uh, support, I think is a good sign. It's a sign that our strategy is attracting uh, support nationally. One was from a private foundation and one is from the federal government. So the one you're referencing is going to provide us with the opportunity to partner with Winona State University and um, fund and support the development of new mental health practitioners, specifically social workers in Rochester Public Schools. With an, uh, certainly there'll be you know uh, future social workers from many backgrounds, but with a particular emphasis on the races and cultures and backgrounds that are underrepresented in our schools right now. And so it's kind of a grow your own strategy because I think if we wait around for people to just sort of show up in Rochester and knock on our doors who have that that skill set and that disposition, it's not going to be a very effective strategy. And so this grant is going to provide us with the resources and then we will sustain those positions from school district dollars because strengthening mental health uh, actually for both students and staff is a critical priority of our strategic plan and this grant is going to help us ramp up our capacity over a three-year period so you mentioned scholarships somebody receiving the scholarship would they have to make a commitment to the rochester public schools we haven't designed that part yet it's not required in the grant i am inclined to do that um to say we expect you to there's a real that seems counter and that seems obvious. Of course, you'd want to do that. There is some evidence, not just from like, you know, plans to have mental health folks is you can scare away some really good people who over time might fall in love with Rochester by saying before they really know Rochester, you got to commit to Rochester. So there is a design issue we have to actually think about. Um, but, you know, it's a pretty standard thing to say you, you need to we're going to pay for your, you know, 
degree and we're going to give you an internship. We're going to give you all this support. And then you have to be in Rochester Public Schools for X number of years. That's definitely a route we we could take. Um, the other way is to say we want people here in Rochester who really want to be here. And so we are going to recruit them like heck and we're going to really um, make this a great place to do the work, but we're not going to mandate it. So that's a really important design question that we need to answer in the early stages of, of launching that work this year. Okay. You mentioned the other grants. Because previously, when you and I got together a month ago, we talked about deeper learning. Yeah. And this uh, does this grant directly apply to what we were talking about? It does. It's going to fund um, support for deeper learning, which is, uh, as we talked about, those experiences that combine real mastery of core concepts and foundational skills, develop kids' identity uh, as learners in those subject areas, in math, in science, in uh, auto uh, technology, you know, whatever it is, and then creativity. They use their knowledge and skills to solve problems and create things. And so this grant is a $1.2 million grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, which is uh, the Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan, who is a pediatrician, practicing pediatrician. And it is going to support from that funding source all of our middle and high school teams, uh, and in particular, of course, teachers, um, integrating deeper learning into the work they do with kids every day. And I'm really committed from uh, other funding sources to find the dollars to bring our early childhood programs and our elementary schools into the project um, so that we don't just have it in our secondary schools. But it's work that is the opposite of a canned curriculum that you can get off the shelf and say, okay, now everybody teach this. Right. It's how do you really help teachers integrate that kind of learning into their thinking. We have many examples of it in RPS today, but candidly for the last 20 years in American education, there has been a lot that has pressured against that kind of learning because it really is the opposite of mile-wide, inch-deep facts that you recall for a standardized test. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty excited about it, and we will be working with Harvard University on that grant, and um, we'll also be um, uh, reaching out to other community partners as we get that underway this spring all right i would love to check in with you once in a while and see how that is going i'm very interested yeah. in the project it's yeah we're i can pretty see excited. the challenges but i can see the reward if it works out the way you want it to yep all right we'll take a quick break we'll gotta go to the newsroom get an update and we'll return with more of the superintendent kent pickell from the rochester public schools on rochester today news talk 1340 kroc am and 96.9 fm Brown L, News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. The superintendent of Rochester Public Schools, Kent Pickell, joining us this morning. Always appreciate you taking the time, Kent, by the way. I was glad to have the opportunity. I always refer to it as you're the many plates you have spinning in the air on these little poles. Uh, you Maybe you could just provide us an update on some of the things that are happening as far as, let's see, the budget. You've got uh, significant spending reductions you're looking at. You've got um, school start times you're looking at. You've got space needs that we're looking at because, ironically, we have some schools that have too much space. I don't know where you want to start. I'll just throw <laughs> it to you, Ken. Um, I don't want to do like a paragraph on each of those. In terms of the budget, we are now – the school board has approved the parameters for our budget for this year, and they have held to the long-term strategy that they approved last year for financial stabilization of our district. Um, and unfortunately, that resolves reductions. It also certainly resolves, uh, we hope, increased revenues from um, – 
the state of Minnesota uh, at the end of the current legislative session. And in the long term, it needs to involve being the provider of choice for all Rochester families. So enrollment is steady or increasing. The budget cuts are, of course, what's much on people's mind right now. Uh, we're making $14 million in reductions to what we call the general fund, the main pot of money uh, this year. Um, we are using some of our COVID dollars for targeted support for critical supports for kids in recovering from the pandemic. And if we weren't doing that, it'd be $21 million. Um, and uh, people always wonder, well, how did we get there? It's a long story, but it's a mix of uh, the state and the federal government underfunding mandated services for special education uh, programs and multi-language learner or what we call English language learner programs. Um, it involves modest decline in enrollment, uh, much better than most other urban uh, school districts have experienced all over the country. So there is no exodus from Rochester Public Schools, but there has been since pre-pandemic um, some decline and that matters. And then it has been a result of the fact that we have added staff uh, over the last decade significantly faster than we've added enrollment. And so we are on a glide path to a place where our expenses are going to match our revenues. We will be needing, and I'll be recommending, the citizens of Rochester to, Rochester to at least renew a local operating levy that provides $17 million in support for us. And, and we, uh, the school board could choose to put that on the ballot next fall or the following fall. Were that not to be done or were it not to pass, we would be making another almost $20 million in reductions. But I'm optimistic um, about that. This th this is a tough problem, but it's a solvable problem. It's going to require vision and discipline. And that's why I was very gratified that the school board, as hard as this is, did approve moving forward with our budget stabilization strategy so that two or three years from now, we are not every spring cutting the budget in Rochester Public Schools because nobody wants to do that. Just a point of clarification, when you said a potential referendum on the operating levy, and you said next fall, you're referring to 2024? It could be 2023 or 2024. Okay, that's right. Yep. Pass at the current levy, which was 2015 passed, it would yes. retire in 2025. Okay. So, And as far as where you are now, you have permission from the school board to pursue this framework. How about you know, assembling the actual... At the budget that will realize that framework is this um do you form a task force a committee a commission or is this handled by the administration it's largely actually right now um administration last year my first year we mostly did it centrally this year we've had much stronger participation from our school level leaders which has been a step forward and this spring we are convening a community budget advisory committee that is going to be comprised of either finance experienced or resource allocation experienced people from many of our community agencies, um, businesses, nonprofits. We're really going for people with expertise um, uh, or at least a passion for following the money. And so I am really hopeful that, I'm not hopeful, I'm positive that by the Budget Advisory Committee, they'll be convening this spring, but they're going to have a learning curve because even people who are uh, complete finance nerds uh, realize school finance is very different than you know for profit you know finance, but I think as we get into the long term strategy, that community community advisory committee is going to be critical because in our strategic plan next year is completely rethinking the way we fund and staff our schools, um, and we're doing that next year so that this year we're getting the academic agenda right so that the academic agenda drives the financial. But 
we still staff Rochester schools in a pretty traditional way, like X number of teachers for X number of kids. And on one hand, that makes it seem fairly, you know, logical, but our schools are incredibly different from each other. And uh, so I think there's an argument for putting more flexibility at the school level within parameters. Um, uh, the other piece is we just have complexity that I think gets in the way of clarity. Um, we fund technology in Rochester Public Schools from 27 different funding sources. And when you are braiding together all those dollars from different funding sources, um, you know, we do it. And I'm proud to say the last two years we have had perfectly clean audits. And so, which is not a small thing for a $350 million organization, but that really doesn't lend itself to really, really effective management of those resources. And so that's why next year we will be doing an intensive scrub of all of our funding streams. And then we will start implementing a different budgeting model the following year in the 24-25 school year. It's frustrating how long that takes, but that's not something you want to get wrong. And the board approves budgets on an annual basis. And so you really have to, it's like turning the quintessential battleship. You really have to start planning longer term. But that's going to be a tremendously important discussion for our system and our community as we really think about how do we match our dollars to the needs of our students. Very big challenge, I imagine. Wow. Yeah, um, it is, but I'm excited about it. I, I think yeah, we're going to do something, I think we're going to do something innovative here in that in that space. The other topic, it's been sticking around now for a couple of years and I hate to even bring it up, but it's been a while since we talked about the school start time issue. I know that's, you did something, you made a little shift this fall or last fall, uh, but you're still looking at a more significant change potentially for the following school year. We Is have, that correct? Yeah, we have to fix that. We moved, our elementary school start times were 9.35 and we moved them 10 minutes to 9.25. That is that is way too late for, first of all, our youngest learners, because little kids are ready to go in the morning. And then by later in the afternoon, you know, they are not at prime time, especially because some of them have been at our school age child care program for two hours. And it doesn't work for working families either. I mean, you know, nine to five is the quintessential, you know, stereotypical job time. And like 925 is after nine to five. And so we've got to get it fixed. The problem is we we have this budget deficit we were just talking about. And so we have to do it in a cost neutral way. And we don't want to mess up the benefits that have happened with moving our start times for middle and high school later because that has gone really, really well. So it became clear to me last year that we needed some fresh eyes on this problem. So we have brought in a national consulting firm that does transportation redesign. They have been looking at at all of our routes. I've said nothing's off the table because everything's interconnected in our transportation system. They were here two weeks ago for in-person work and we will be getting their uh, initial recommendations in March. my hope is that we actually can make I can make some recommendations to the school board for next year. Um, if it was not Im- not possible to implement next year because some of the changes were so significant, like in who can go to school where, I would still anticipate asking the school board to approve the changes this spring, maybe for implementation the following year. But I say that hoping that that's not the case. But I really would like to get this fixed before the end of the school year, at least in terms of the direction that we're heading. And um, it, it would be really unfortunate to have it 
continue to be an annual exercise to talk about start times in Rochester. Like we, nothing's permanent, but we need to get a structure that get can be stable and that families can depend on, depend upon. Uh, hopefully, in the near future. With the consultants, do they give you progress reports? Do you have? John Carlson, who's our chief administrative officer, has been their main point of contact. And I periodically say to John, I was like, you know, I don't need them to come in and just admire the problem. Just say, oh, you got a huge school district and you don't have a lot of money. And so this is really a problem because consultants can sometimes do that. I said, no, no, no. I We really need solutions. I'm pretty confident. Um, one of the things that they we have a two tier system right now in Rochester, which means the bus goes out. It delivers kids in one loop and then it does another loop. They've said, we think you might need to go to a three-tier system. Um, for a long time in Rochester, we've had the idea that, for instance, all elementary schools have to start at the same time, all middle schools and all high schools. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's nice because then it's easier for people to remember. And we have some staff that travels between schools. And then we have some kids who take online classes between schools. But nothing comes for free and everything has a trade-off. And if having some of our elementary schools start at one time in one tier – and some start in a second tier and some, some start in a third tier would enable us to get to that more like 8.30 start time or maybe between 8 and 8.30. Uh, that's a trade-off that I personally would probably be willing to make. Hmm. But um, we have to see. <laughs> kind of yeah. that in. Okay. Double-decker buses? I haven't heard that one. I do have regularly, and we had some discussions <laughs> last year about more kids driving, getting on city buses. We do it with some of our programs, and I know the city of Rochester and the county are investing in transit. I think it's something for us to keep talking about. Right now, that's clearly not a fix for us, but we're going to have to get creative. Is there anything of note yet concerning the discussions about the empty space at Longfellow? We have a task force right now that is working on that. I'm expecting some recommendations from them this spring. So the main focus that they are working on is could the school succeed as a K-8 school as opposed to K-6? Because there's a lot of families who'd like to keep their kids going to the – that. first of all, it's a wonderful school. But going to on what we call the balanced calendar or 45-15 where they go to school for 45 days and then they're off 15 days. I agree it's a great calendar. It does – uh, among other things, so it's not Longfellow's issue at all alone, it does further complicate our transportation system to have a school on a different calendar. And um, I was surprised to note there are now only three 4515 schools in the state of Minnesota where there used to be many more. Austin is, is ending theirs this year. So I don't say that ominously. I would love to preserve that calendar. And the working group is looking at could the building, which is a beautiful building, be successful as a middle school, even though it was designed as an elementary school. So that's definitely uh, uh, a very current issue that I'm hoping we can have a um, strategy for. We will consider that tied to the transportation stuff we were just talking about because because it's interlinked. Absolutely. I get it. Okay. We'll come back in a moment, a few more minutes with the superintendent here on Rochester Today. It's News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Individual rates, coverage offerings, and savings may vary. Subject to term. Superintendent of Rochester Public Schools, Kent Bacall on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. Going way back to when you first came to the Rochester School District. And you brought up this issue right away. And it's popped up ever since then and various discussions, but it's the idea of making sure that the students have a sense of belonging in the school. And over the past month, you recommended a 
somebody's blog and I read the blog and and I thought she was very poignant in the way I guess pointed out the advantages of it. Well, why? I, maybe a better way to say that is why it's important to have that sense of belonging. Um, and I don't know where I'm going to uh, as a question on this, but I guess maybe um, do you have any, I know you made it part of the mission of the schools to have somebody in each school building connect with each kid. Are you he- hearing any anecdotal um, evidence of progress on this and any anything out there that uh, points to this having an impact? Um, we're, our, our discipline data is much better than last year. So that could be partly okay. of that. Um, w- I have heard many examples of because some of our schools are getting more proactively connected to kids. They are surfacing both educational, mental health, and social needs earlier. You know, you're not waiting for the crisis to happen. Um, the blog that I mentioned is by a, a physician who's actually a psychiatrist, Dr. Pam Cantor, who is a former colleague who started an amazing nonprofit called Turnaround for Children. And Pam writes about the physiological aspects of belonging, that this is not just about how well a kid can focus on math or reading. They're literally their ability to self-regulate, their ability to uh, control impulses and, and uh, to focus on anything is influenced by the degree to which they feel like an imposter or they feel what we call stereotype threat, that people like you can't succeed here. And this is, of course, something that has its most negative impacts on people who are from backgrounds that have been historically marginalized or against which there's been a lot of bias. But there's these fascinating experiments that show you can impose it on like white guys like us. There's a famous experiment at Stanford, not famous, it's one of my favorite, I should say, with uh, white male math students at an elite, elite university. And like all these experiments, they they split them into two groups randomly assigned and and they brought them in to take a math test. And the first group, they said, thank you for coming to take this math test. It's going to help us, you know, understand the math abilities of our students. The second group, right before they took the test, was told, thank you for coming to take this math test. It's going to help us understand why Asian students reliably do better than white students on this test. Well, guess what happened? The, this, the randomly selected, you know, white Stanford University, I mean, super elite university students who had the suggestion put in their minds that you're not as good as somebody did significantly worse on the math test than the people who were just told to take it because they they were Absolutely. diverting they were diverting their mental energy from the math to buffering against the idea or trying to understand why Asian kids quote-unquote, we're doing better on the test than white kids. And so this issue of creating environments in which all kids can be them their best selves, it is not fluff. It is not saying there are not differences in academic abilities, just like, you know, the famous example is there's differences in the ability to shoot a free throw. There are differences in the ability to write an essay or do a proof. But we have to create environments in which all kids feel they are expected to succeed and that they can succeed. And that's what we're trying to lean into with this idea of work on belonging. It's not some sort of touchy feely, um, uh, counter social notion of something. It's just saying we are going to make every kid feel that we are glad they're in our, our schools and we expect them to succeed. We have high expectations for them and we're going to provide them with the support that they need. I think any adult, if they actually spend some time reflecting on their younger days, 
they're going to remember a time where they felt like they were the outsider. Totally. That, or as they said, this blogster, blog writer wrote, the imposter. And, and I can and have a, a way to relate to what you're saying here. If you could uh, eliminate that, get that thought out of your brain. And people, when they think about belonging, a lot of times they think about these issues of diversity and equity and race and culture, and that certainly is an aspect of it. It also is just about what 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 I would call normalizing struggle. When a kid gets a low score on a test or when a kid doesn't know the answer when they're called on in class or when a student, um, like, you know, gets, you know, out in dodgeball in gym class, whatever it is. So they suffer some kind of a setback. A student who feels that they fundamentally don't belong will interpret that as confirmation that they don't belong. But if you create schools in which you proactively say to kids, all of us struggle, all of us have uh, days when we can't get the math right or we get out in dodgeball or whatever, but we don't quit and we get support. The studies have shown that when you proactively convey that, then when the kid gets the low score or somebody says something to them that's really challenging or whatever happens, rather than interpreting it as confirmation that I'm not good enough or I don't belong here, they see it as the normal part of how people get by. And 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 so it's about creating environments in which we make it normal to struggle, fail, and keep working so that kids don't internalize the wrong message and then just disengage because that because that's just a psychological protection mechanism i don't want to feel terrible about myself so i'm going to just assume you know this school is against me and i'm not going to engage because that's an easier thing than i'm i'm not worthy you're building resiliency you're building resilience and we just know from a lot of research and kind of from common sense that you create the social environment for resilience. I mean, uh, for uh, I don't know exactly why, but belonging in some ways has become a little bit controversial among some. You want to see like master belonging builders? Look at any good athletics coach or like Amy Munson at the theater program at Mayo High School. They create belonging among those kids. And yeah, someone's going to be the star player or the star actress, but the person who's doing the scenery or the person who's sitting on the bench in, with a great one of our you know great coaches or directors, they have those kids feeling like they are just as much a part of it, and they're masters at it. And and we need to bring that into our classrooms and into our schools, um, which is a different environment because kids are choosing to do the theater or do the um, the team, and they're not always choosing to be in you know English nine. <laughs> All right. Well said, uh, Superintendent. Uh, Kent, again, I'm going to truly thank you for taking the time to talk to our audience and share what's happening with the Rochester Public Schools. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I thank you. It's always an honor. Kent Pacal, the Superintendent of Rochester Public Schools. It's been Rochester Today on News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. I'm Martin Hoke, the inventor of Navage Nasal Care, and 